Welcome to... Hey, great shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast brought to you by Cracked Rackets. My name's Alex Gruskin. We are back for a day two recap of the Wimbledon action. You know, there's been so many good matches, and because in the first round there's so much tennis to sift through, we wanted to give you guys another daily recap, make it a little bit easier for you, the fan, in case you missed any of the big matches or you want to know which are the matches you should go check on replay. We'll break those down here, get this out to you as quickly as possible so you can be geared up for your round two viewing. And joining me on this podcast today, he is our recurring guest for this Wimbledon event. We are so happy to have him on the pod, as always, as his enthusiasm for the game is just contagious. It's Cracked Rackets writer Matt Stokowiak. Matt, hey, great shot. Alex, I'm loving your intros, man. I really am. Uh, And it seems like we're kind of making this a regular uh, occurrence here now, but uh, I'm loving it, man. So we got more to talk about. I may have gotten a text from a certain Flax Mrothman, and he may have been a little bit salty that I've been bringing someone on so consistently that isn't him, but we actually might be able to get him and you on next week for a pod. There's rumors that he'll be in Ann Arbor, so hopefully he'll be back soon, but like I said, it it's so fun having you on here, so obviously anytime you're available, I'm going to keep having you back. Absolutely, man. I'm always game for it. Oh, I'm, gla- I'm glad to hear it, but it wouldn't be complete if we didn't have a third voice, and because we are in his room recording this, it's only fitting that he gets back on this podcast. He shied away from the day one recap, but it is our super producer and Ivy League champion, Max Fliegner, back in the booth with us. Max, hey, great shot. I like the fact that uh, you're going to include Ivy League champion. Forever. Your, uh, yeah, yeah. If you ever take That's something a, you can't take away from me. I think for our 50th pod, you're going to do the introduction, and you better introduce me as uh, club tennis national champion. <laughs> I better start preparing yeah, now. It's all a setup for that. Yeah. You have to realize yeah, I'm exactly. playing the long con. But either way, it's good to have you back in the booth, and obviously, Thank you. now that Djokovic has played, you, you're ready to get back oh. on the mic and talk a little tennis, right? Am I? (laughs) (laughs) You do look ready. You have the glasses on, and you know I love your takes when you're in glasses. But let's get right into it. It has been a fantastic first round at this year's Wimbledon. We've had established players looking great and winning in straight sets. We've had top seeds go down with upsets. We've had young guys beginning to break through and show their promise. And all of that really was captured in today's matches as well, which is what made day two so fun. And when we did our preview pod, we didn't get much right. But one thing we did consistently say is that this bottom half of the draw was going to be the more exciting side to watch. And boy, was it. It really was some incredible tennis, Matt. Yeah, definitely. I knew as soon as the draw came out, um, the bottom half looked great. It was stacked players, you know, all over the place. Um, And it definitely didn't disappoint. So um, I think we're going we're gonna to touch on a few of the big ones here uh, that we saw today. Yeah, and just like last podcast for you listeners, the way we're going to do today's show is we're going to take a deep dive into our favorite matches from today. We're going to you know, break down the stats, talk about what we saw, what patterns allowed each player to win, and if there are any implications, any storylines coming off of those matches. And then, of course, we're going to list through the notable results as well, tell you which top seeds cruised and which ones fell a little short. But let's start with our first breakdown. That's obviously the biggest upset of the day. We had... 
former Australian Open finalist, Cypress's very own. And what a time it's been for Cypress tennis. You've got Petros. Is it Cypress tennis? Cyprusian tennis? I don't <laughs> I don't think I got that right. But you've got Petros Risokos winning the NCAA team title, winning the singles title, winning a futures title in Winston-Salem. Still hasn't lost a match. I believe his win streak's in the 30s. And now you have Marcos who said, whoa, 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 Petros. I am still the star in Cyprus, taking out number seven seed, Dominic Team, 6-4-7-5-2-0 retired. Obviously, the retirement shows Team was not feeling his best, but Matt, what did you see from Team? You know, in our preview, we said he's a guy to watch struggle because his game doesn't really translate well to the grass. And is that what we saw today? It was just simply, you know, Team still not ready to make that adjustment? Yep, that's exactly right, man. I watched a good bit of this match, and just from the beginning, team, he doesn't look comfortable on the grass. That's why I said in our uh, preview podcast the other day, I don't trust him at all, um, and I, I was you know, getting ready for an early upset there. So for me, this is no shock. Uh, Baghdadis is always a tough out. He has you know, a good bit of experience, obviously, on the grass. He's been around forever. So um, team really just... <laughs> He stands so far behind the baseline, and he just plays that grinding kind of clay court game, and and it's just not gonna it's not gonna cut it here at Wimbledon. So Baghdadis stayed on top of the baseline. Uh, one stat that really jumped out to me was their second serve uh, winning percentage. Team was not able to back up his second serve at all, and a lot of times, as we know, that stat can uh, kind of tell the outcome of a match. And this one. Baghdadis, 79% of his second serve points he won, and team only 42%. So there's a huge difference there. Usually the player that can protect his second serve better is going to come out on top, and that's what happened here. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Some of the other statistics from this match, neither of these guys hit the first serve particularly well. Both of them hit making 48% of their first serves, but Baghdadis wins 93% of those points. Team does well protecting his serve, wins 80%, and again, six, four, seven, five sets. Those are close one-break sets, and you see Baghdadis gets three breaks, one in each of the sets, gets one in the third set before Team retires. So it's not as though Team got blown out, but yeah, like you mentioned, Baghdadis, his ground strokes a little bit flatter, really penetrated this court well, stayed low on Team, and you know, on grass, like you mentioned, he doesn't have time to utilize those huge back swings and take big rips into the ball because by that point, the ball's already two bounces in and he you know he just doesn't have that time and like you said Baghdadis took advantage he's on top of the baseline you look at distance covered team 25.4 feet per point Baghdadis 24.7 you know not exactly a huge difference but it does show Baghdadis was dictating just a little bit more neither of these guys really came to the net that often Baghdadis only nine attempts at net team 16 so it really was Baghdadis grinding down team and yeah, on a grass court, like you said, it, it's upsetting to see teams' game not yet able to translate to success on that surface. Yeah, so my, my final thoughts on this match really are just that team, you know, he had to retire. He wasn't feeling great. Um, I think, you know, in the coming years, he's going to have to modify his schedule a little bit. He plays tournaments uh, almost every week, it seems, and you know, for a guy that's top 10 in the world, he's going to kind of have to figure out how to manage that schedule a little bit better. And then secondly, just learn how to play on grass. I mean, I know it's going to be hard for him, but obviously, you know, one major a year, Wimbledon's every single year. And if he ever wants to contend, he's going to have to really figure out how to shorten up his strokes and 
kind of push up on the baseline, take returns a little bit earlier, and just play from closer to the baseline. And, you know, does he have the ability to do it? I think he does, but obviously he's not comfortable with it. So that's something that he's going to have to work on here uh, if he ever wants to make some noise on the grass. So a quick hypothetical, and then we'll move on from this match, but it's regarding Dominic team and regarding his summer. You have success throughout the clay season. You get two titles under your belt, one in Lyon, sorry, one in Buenos Aires. And you, so you've had a good year to date. He's 36 and 11 now on the year. Are you satisfied with that point? Or is it maybe, maybe focus less on the clay results? You know, don't build up so many points there. Be a little bit better rested because he really was worn down in this match. Yeah, I agree with Matt in the sense that I think it's important for him to start developing a game that can be successful on multiple surfaces because I don't really think it's an excuse to just say, oh, I was worn down, so I, I can't handle the grass court season, you know, even though I did really well in clay because we saw this happen last year as well. So, no, I, I don't think he should just be satisfied with doing well on clay and not on grass. I think the mark of a great player really is being able to do well on you know, every surface. He didn't really have a great hardcore season, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think he went out early. Dominic, he lost to Kudla. No, Kudla took him in five. Who did he end up losing? Oh, no, no, did Kudla beat him? No, no, Sandgren beat him? I believe Sandgren Australian. beat him at the Australian yeah, Open, right? That's that's possible. You'd know yeah. better than I would, but okay, there it's, we go. Yeah, it sounds, exactly. And so, okay, that's a fair point. And yeah, so, I, yeah, I don't think, I don't think it's a matter of you know, taking an easier clay season or something like that. I mean, he's playing the same amount as all the other top guys. You know, obviously we see Federer take the clay season off, but he has an excuse because he's almost 40. (laughs) And he's also won 20 Grand Slams. So, All very good points. That's why I want to ask you, Matt, based off of Fleetner's answer, because, you know, that, that is one line of thinking to take. If your team... If you you know you want to keep up getting those get keeping all those points during the clay season, keeping up your success there, you know, being able to protect yourself in the rankings with that portion of the season, how is it that you change your attitude and adjust to get better on the grass? Well, here's the thing. I mean, we got to remember he's a top, a solid top ten player, and like Fleetner said, I mean, you can't really have the excuse of oh, you know, I'm just I'm going to play well on clay. And then when grass rolls around, you know, I'm going to bow out early. I mean, that's really, to me, that's unacceptable from a top 10 player. And, you know, here's what I think. I mean, I think he can still play, you know, a good amount of clay events. And whenever he plays on clay, you know he's going to be successful. So he can gain points on the clay without, you know, playing every single week. He can still gain points and his ranking isn't going to drop back, you know, if he misses one or two events that's not going to kill him so what i would recommend that he does this off season is really just kind of hit on grass even the hard courts just focus on you know changing his game just a little bit so he can play on those other surfaces and then you know when clay rolls around he knows what to do i mean he doesn't need any help with the clay so i'd focus all my energy on you know trying to stay up on that baseline take some balls early and, uh, you know, really be more of an all-around type guy. Because when you're in the top 10, I mean, you pretty much have to be all-around. Yeah. The, you, again, you both make some very good points. I guess we'll end with this, and this was really the root of my question. Still, Dominic's team season to date, success or failure? Fligner? I mean, I, I know this one, is— I, I only need this, a one or an answer. I was going to yeah. say, I know this is a punt, but it's a little bit of both, right? Sure. Okay, you what know, about you, Stokowiak? What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I mean, it's like a mystery. Of course, making the finals of the French Open, I mean, it's, that's unbelievable, right? So that's, that's a success. But, 
you know, it's, it, it's both, like Fleetner said. I mean, I'm with him on that for sure. Okay, I, I'm going to agree with you guys. You make good points. I think if I'm, tr- you know, in terms of guys on season, he's had a top five season. You can't count Federer because even though he won the Australian, he wasn't there for the clay portion of the year. Zvira has been good, but inconsistent. Del Potro has been good, but has struggled at the Grand Slams. We haven't really seen him break through that well yet. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I agree with you. Success and failure is a good place to leave it. But let's talk about a guy who, though we, we said you know, was a, fa- a failure is, you know, it's, it's tough to brand someone a failure, particularly because he's a pro tennis player. He's better than I could ever be, but you have to imagine if you're number 18 seed Jack Sock following your 6-7, first round loss to Matteo Berrettini. It's his fourth straight first round exit at a grand slam in singles. You know, he now falls to five and 13 on the year. Just a very, very rough start for Sock. Matt, you watched this match. What did you see? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm pretty pissed off at Jack Stock, to be honest. I mean, there's no way around it. He's way too talented of a player to uh, be 0-4 in the first round of the last four slams. That is unacceptable. He had a phenomenal finish to 2017. He finished in the top 10, career high ranking. You know, everybody coming into 2018 thought that he was going to actually be, you know, a possible contender at some of the slams. And he can't even get out of the first round. It's just, it's ridiculous to me. So I don't know what's up with him. Um, he wins the first two sets here today against Berrettini. And, you know, as soon as the draw came out, and I said this again um, in the preview pod, that he's going to lose this match. I picked Berrettini because I like Berrettini. He's a good player on the rise. But Sock, ah, he just, he can't get anything going. Um, you know, I don't know if, if he's got personal issues or, you know, what his training is going like or anything like that. But, I mean, this has been, for me, one of the worst years, really, that I can remember in in a long time from a guy that started the year in the top 10. <laughs> he starts in the top 10, and, you know, he's 5-13 and 13 on the year. So that's, that's as bad as you can get. Uh, but, you know, definitely credit to Berrettini in this match. Uh, he's a big guy. He plays big, big serve, big forehand, uh, young guy. So we're definitely going to be seeing a lot more of him. I'm, I'm a fan. And, you know, to go down two sets is obviously that's the hardest task in tennis is to come back from two sets to none. So he was able to do it here, you know, albeit against a Jack Sox that is clearly wounded in, in more areas than one, I would say. But, um, yeah, you know, overall, Berrettini moves on, and that's kind of how I expected it to go. But with Sock being up two sets, I was kind of hoping that he was going to pull that out and, you know, possibly go on a run, but not to be. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm actually quite surprised about this result because especially being up two sets to love and, you know, having some really good numbers, like he won 67% of his net points, um, you know, serving 60% for serve average. So, like, good numbers and... I agree. It's just super disappointing to see him go out like this. You know, I have a lot of takes on this match, and I do want to talk about it more than probably Jack Sock deserves because, as you mentioned, Matt, it is unacceptable for a player of his talent level to be going out so consistently in first rounds of Grand Slams. Four in a row, it's the opposite of the Golden Slam. It's the anti-Rod uh, Laver. It's, I don't know, who's the worst tennis player who, who, what's the opposite of Rod Laver? What's the comparison for this? Who's a guy who's just flunked out with cheating? 
with cheating. Yeah, or just something terrible. <laughs> I don't know. But it's Robin Soderling. We're very Robin Soderling. It's nothing <laughs> like a Robin Soderling. That's an awful comparison. Uh, it's the Nate Ponwith of uh, oh god of professional tennis. No, I'm just kidding, Nate. And we should probably Nate. Have... We should have you on the pod. <laughs> yeah. Um. But I, I just, it's not an acceptable thing, especially going up two sets to zero. And you watch, if you watch this match, you saw Jack Sock play so well in those first two tiebreakers. I thought he really was dictating. He was the better player. And it's funny, Burrettini, speaking of college players, Burrettini reminds me of a better Carl Soderlund. I don't know if you saw, you know, Soderlund, the Virginia player, if you've seen him play at all or seen his strokes, but it was very similar. Does a good job of taking balls early, has a solid first serve, was able to get Sock stretched obviously figured out I need to keep the ball on the ad side of the court because the sock forehand is significantly better than the backhand but in those first two sets sock did a great job running around it he acted athletic on the court made first serves he's always a guy who knows when to come in and in this match he goes 30 of 45 from the net another good number a number you want to see but it was really that effort that effort in the fifth set especially I know physically he was hurting which is another issue but just the way he so lackadaisically goes after the balls he so casually and cavalierly hits drop shots and just you cannot maintain a status as a top 10 player when you play as casually as Jack Sock does and until he is willing it's similar you know a guy a constant comparison for him is Nick Kyrgios two guys who when they are mentally locked in they're as talented as any duo on the planet and you know in this instance it was one of those cases where Sock was not locked in and he let the line judge get in his head you know he was complaining saying again you're the worst line judge ever and it's the little things like that that are just you can't have those characteristics if you want to be a top 10 player. Yep, and and I don't know if he's really got time now to turn this season around either. I mean, we're what seventy five percent of the way, nearly through the through the year, and I mean he's five and thirteen. I don't know if he can turn it around. And you know, I don't want to speculate. I don't know what's going on. You know, behind the scenes, I only can watch him when he's on the court. But I mean, is he is he training as hard as he possibly could? I mean, are things at home all good? Is there an issue that we don't really know about? I mean, any of that could be in play. So, you know, I'm just going off of what I've seen from him on the court, and it's it's not been good. So, you know, I'm, I'm a Sox fan, obviously. I mean, I want, I want him to do well, but, you know, another first-round exit for him. So No, I, I, compl- I completely agree. And something I would consider exploring, play some more doubles events. Get your confidence up. Get some wins on the court. No doubles is not singles, but still winning on a tennis court breeds confidence. Get a little more confidence in your returns, your volleys, your serve. You know, just keep building on things because all of the traits you have for success. I mean, he hit some inside out forehands today. Only Jack Sock can hit. That type of power, that type of spin, especially on a grass court, it's incredible. So, all of the, again, the talent is there. It's just still a question of putting the pieces together. And yes, he continues to get older. I think he's 25, 26 now. And like you said, 2018, probably a wash. But build some confidence going into that, you know, that hardcore season and that year end. Defend those points in Paris. Just get yourself confident because there is still a lot of tennis to play. And there's p- plenty of time to get some good results in to build confidence for the slams in 2019. But okay, Enough of Jack Sock. Let's talk about probably my favorite. You know, I'm going to go ahead and say it. My favorite match, at least, and here's a Fliegner word, aesthetically. Can I get the bells? My match of the day, K-1 
Karen Hatchanov takes out David Ferrer, another former favorite of mine, 6-1-7-6-3-6-7-5, in one of the most physical matches I can ever remember seeing on a grass court. Uh, Matt, I don't know how much of this match you got to see, but again, another guy we talked about in the preview, Hachanov, dangerous in that quarter. Now he takes on Baghdadis with a chance to get into the third round instead of team. Is he a guy you could see doing damage making the second week of this event? Yeah, I think it's possible. I don't know if if this particular event is going to be his time, uh, but eventually, I mean, he's another player on the rise. He's going to be making second weeks of slams um, shortly, whether that's know this time around or not I don't know but uh in the near future he will be doing that for sure um you know we know against Ferrer Ferrer's always going to try to make the match physical on any surface doesn't matter if it's grass hard clay whatever Ferrer's going to try and turn it into a dog fight like that and Hatchinoff really I mean he's just too big and strong you know and he was able to kind of bully Ferrer around and you know Ferrer's getting up there in age he can only do so much at this point but I really like Hatchinoff I mean he big serve, big ground strokes. He moves extremely well for, I think he's like 6'6". Six, six. You know, for a guy that size, he moves great. He's, you know, he's coming on. I think he's definitely got, you know, top 10 potential, um, you know, before it's all said and done. I think he's only 21, 22 years oh old. Oh, my gosh. Ha- so I had to look this up because I did not believe you. Hatchanov is 6'6", six, six, and it's almost, I don't want to say a Burdich-type 6'6", six, six, but he is that sort of sturdy, but he's much more agile and much more fluid hips. Like you mentioned, an excellent mover, particularly on the grass. And yeah, he's a guy I could see making a run here. You're looking at his draw. He has Baghdadis, and if he's able to win that, he would play the winner of Benito and Tiafo. Uh, you know, a guy, he's going to be favored in that match if he can get through Baghdadis no matter what. And then he's in the fourth round, and you know, that is a successful result for him. So to get this win against Ferrer, and you look at some of the stats from this match. Hachanov makes 74% of his first serves a remarkable number. That's the number that, you know, allows you to win in a match like this. Wins 74% of those first serve points, 58% of his second serve points, you know, goes to the net 36 times, which is an uncharacteristically high number and something that's definitely showing an improvement and a jump in his attitude on the grass from him. And he converts 72% of those points, goes 26 of 36, 5 of 10 on breaks versus Ferrer's 4 of 10. Uh, You look at total points from this match, he wins 131, Ferrer 111. That's a comfortable margin despite a lot of the sets being very close. It was an excellent match, very physical. Again, Hachanov was able to get Ferrer moving side to side, keep all of his balls in the outer third of the court, and never allow Ferrer to start dictating and, you know, being the more... I don't want to say in shape because you never want to say Ferrer's not in shape, but being the younger player, he was able to be more physically active, be moving that much better in that late in the fourth set. He gets a break despite going down 40-15 at 5-all in the fourth and just played a really good last 10-point stretch of the match to secure the victory. Like you mentioned, big first serve, really good growth from Hachanov. What would you see, Fligner? Yeah, I agree. I, I agree with the growth take there because I, I have to say I haven't been a huge Hachanov fan you know I think uh, I think he's also shown growth in the mental toughness realm you know I think uh, losing that third set is always tough you know when you go up two sets to love and you know you're like man I, I really don't want to lose this match the now. curse of 6-1 you won <laughs> the, the first set 6-1 exactly. yeah no that's a real thing kids. hey great job yeah <laughs> but uh, good mental toughness from him 
uh, especially against a guy like Ferrer, who's just going to be battling all day. And, um, you know, I mean, you made this point earlier about, uh, earlier about Ferrer. Uh, you know, I think his ball um, doesn't really penetrate the court as much on a grass court. I think Hachanov has a bit of an advantage there uh, because, like you said, his serve is so big, his forehand's big. But, you know, I think I agree with growth in, you know, movement, mental toughness, etc., I think part of the reason I was so shocked that Stokoyak revealed Hachanov 6-6 is because he was able to get so low for the ball. He's able to really bend his knees and physically get down there and still be able to hit through the ball. And you compare that to a performance with Daniil Medvedev, another young Russian versus Chorich yesterday, who didn't really get low for the ball, but took balls early, got up there so they were in his strike zone and did a really good job of changing direction on Chorich. I guess my question to you guys, and we'll start with you, Matt, you know, Medvedev taking out Chorich in straights versus Hachanov taking out Ferrer in four sets. You know, not to stereotype these guys, but they're going to be compared for the rest of their career, so why not start now? You know, what was the more impressive performance from the which young Russian, Hachanov or Medvedev, Matt? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely impressed by both results there, but I'm going to have to go with Medvedev over Chorich as a little bit more impressive just because... You know, those guys are about the same age. Chorich was the 16th seed, um, so that's a little bit bigger of a result. You know, if this would have been, you know, if this match would have happened 10 years ago with Ferrer in his prime or whatever, I probably would have gone with, with Hachinov's win. But uh, at this time, I'll have to go with Medvedev on that. But I also want to bring up one other young Russian, Andre Rublev, who's actually out right now injured. Um, he's another young guy that's on the rise. He's young Russian have really been taught well, and I think all three of them are going to be, I mean, they are part of that next-gen. They are the future. So Medvedev, Hachinov, Rublev, watch out for all three of those guys. I'm high on every single one of them, and I think they have super, super big potential. That is a mean Davis Cup team to be reckoned with in about two to three years. They're going to get a lot of wins, and it's gonna, it's like the France team now of Gasquet, Songa. Uh, you have Mahout and Herbert and... I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting more. Simone, just such a great generation. Yeah, Russia, the future of tennis for that country, looking very bright. But Flinger, what about you? Who is the more impressive young Russian? I'm actually going to have to disagree and go with Hachana. I like just it. Just for these, just, you know, just like we're comparing just these two matches. Um, I think, you know, a win over a guy like Ferrer is, you know, not to take anything away from Chorich, but I just think it's so tough to beat a guy like Ferrer who you know, is a veteran of the game, like I said earlier, is going to fight and scrap for every point. And, you know, Chorich is maybe a little bit of a hothead sometimes, um, isn't always as focused, whereas Ferrer is going to be digging in and focusing for every point. And I just think, like, especially, you know, to do it in four sets, really impressive. You know what? I'm sorry, Matt. He's in front of me, so I don't want to disagree with him. I, I have to say as well, George really folded in those last two sets yesterday. That was not the case from Ferrer. So physical and such a great win from Hachanov. You could tell when he served it out, he, you know, he felt a sense of relief because whenever you see a guy like Ferrer first round, you know, that's the last type of player you want to play. As you mentioned, a guy who is going to stay out there all day and make you beat him. You know, he's not going to beat himself. And really good sign of growth from Hachanov. So I agree 
great result from him. That's why I wanted to mention him and break down this match because I do think he has a chance to do some damage in this event. But let's move on to our next breakdown. You know, let's have a little fun. We I feel like we're not in the type of mood we should be given the quality of tennis. That sock match really had us down in the dumps. It's, it's tough to talk about Jack Sock's results. So let's talk about our most impressive young American of the day. We should give a shout out to Taylor Fritz because he won his first match after dropping a first set. But the guy I want to talk about and the match we have to talk about now, Francis Tiafo takes out number 30 seed Fernando Verdasco, 7-6-7-6-3-6-6-3. You know, yesterday, even though he lost, we were talking about how impressive Michael Moe was. Today, we're talking about how great Tiafo and Fritz are. Uh, we'll start with you, Matt. In this Tiafo match, you know, what did you see that has you so excited about his future? Oh, yeah, this was definitely my favorite match of the day. The, the best result, in my opinion. Um, you know, I, I thought... <laughs> Going in, I thought Verdasco, unfortunately, was probably going to take it just based off of experience. And, you know, he's been around a while. I didn't know that Francis, you know, had played that much on the grass. I thought he was going to come in and, you know, hit some good shots. But in the end, I thought Verdasco would probably outlast him. And it, it went the other way. Francis was able to win two top tiebreakers in the first two sets, which, I mean, that's excellent, excellent growth for a young player. Um, against a, a veteran who's been around forever. I mean, when the, when the moments get tough like that, that's kind of where I thought that Verdasco, you know, it may swing a little bit in his favor. But Francis has shown that he has improved mentally quite a bit. And I think that's kind of the difference. You know, you mentioned Michael Moe. Right now, Francis, you know, he's, he's a step ahead because mentally he has more experience in these big matches. And he's, you know, he, he really believes that he can take these guys out. Um, and I think Moe's going to get there, but Francis, he's doing it now. And on the grass, which, you know, I don't know, I don't know if I'd say it's his worst surface. You know, grass or clay are probably not his two favorite surfaces. So, um, Matt, I'm sorry hard, to but, do this, but I want to uh, cut you off now because I have a hot take and, you know, cue the sizzle. But so my question to you guys, because this is something I really, I had to think about it, but I think I'm confident making this take now. I think given the way Tiafo slices and the way he, you know, he's so crafty, he'll move you around. He wants to make the match a junk ball track meet with the drop shots and the quick dashes at the net. So my question to you, is grass his worst surface? Are we sure it's not his best surface? Are we sure that, you know, given how tricky his game can be, grass may not be, or may not be the most suitable for him? It's definitely not his best surface. <laughs> I say that with is, is this why I should stay out of the prediction game and just stop asking questions like this? No, that's a fair question. He, hard courts are his best surface. And, you know, that's the case right now. I think he can turn into a grass court player and be very, very good on the grass. But he just hasn't played on it enough yet that we could really call it his best surface. This is just one result. It's a very good result. But let's kind of see, you know, what happens from this point on. But either way... I mean, it was it was a surprising result in the very best way uh, for me. And, you know, from a guy that hadn't really played much on grass, you know, he, he impressed me. So um, keep, it, keep it going, Francis, man. I love it. Well, then I want to ask you, Fliegner. I'm looking for someone to take my side. So keep that in <laughs> mind when you answer this. And we were talking about this earlier. Francis Tiafo is grass his best surface? Mm, no. It's not? No, I don't think so. You think like my heart. I, I, look, I... 
I'm really impressed with how he played today. There's no question. I mean, especially, uh, you know, like he said, against a veteran. I, I know I keep seeing the word veteran, and it's starting to get annoying, but it's true. Beating a guy with that much experience is really impressive. I was also uh, really impressed with his continual ability to just keep coming in, which obviously is something uh, that you need to do on grass to be successful. And so he used an all-around game today. That was great. But I don't know if I'm ready to say, you know, it's his best surface. Like, it was a great match, no question. But he's going to have to prove himself a little more for me to think that. Okay, so I just amped him up, but I want to give a couple of stats on the opposite side, backing your side of the argument. So let's talk about Verdasco real quick. His last six results at Wimbledon. First round loss this year. First round loss last year. First round loss 2016. Third round loss 2015. First round loss 2014. And then a quarterfinal in 2013. So yes, Verdasco's game, not the most translatable to grass. He's a guy who's known more for his aptitude on clay. Yeah. You know, the huge ground strokes, the big forehand moving you off the court side to side. Yeah. So it is true that, you know, Verdasco's not known for that. But as you mentioned, he's still a veteran. He still can go out on any surface and execute his game plan. Big lefty serves out wide, get you worked off the court, use his forehand to stretch you. And, you know, for Francis to show, you know, I can solve that riddle. I know I have to key in on your backhand side. I know when you slice, I need to hop on that and come to the net. That sort of game planning and execution of that game plan is a sign of growth from him. But a fun stat from this one, you look at the total points won, Verdasco wins 144, Tiafa only wins 140. So despite this match being a four-set match, it really was an either-or. And, you know, the, the real difference is those first two set tie breaks. Francis comes up with a couple big first serves. He hits returns deep into the center, kind of jamming the Verdasco backhand. Those little adjustments are what help you win big matches like this. And then what also helps, you know, you make 64% of your first serve, win 69% of those points, 64% of your second serves, come to the net 40 times, win 73% of those points. He, he had a lot of success, and, you know, that is the type of tennis you want to see from these young Americans. Clutch is, is what I want to say. I mean, he, he was clutch in the big moments, and that's where I thought Verdasco may get him, but this is uh, it's a huge step forward for him. I mean, to win to win his first round match at Wimbledon over a seeded player, um, a guy that's been around forever, huge step forward. So uh, phenomenal result for him. Last thing I'll mention from this match, and then we can move on. Break points. Tiafo goes two of four, right? Pretty good. He takes care of his opportunities. Verdasco two of fifteen. So Verdasco had a ton of chances, and yeah, clutch might be the word. Francis found a way to dig himself out of holes, to just stay in the match, keep fighting, scrapping his way along, and in the end, it was enough. It got him through against, a, I think he got his first break in the first set, and then he got his only other break in that fourth set, and you know, when you can win two tie breaks, that'll get it done for you. But all right, let's move on to our next match. And this will be the last match we do a breakdown of a match both you and Fligner said, oh, upset alert or whatever stupid phrase Brad Gilbert goes with. Well, for the first time, I can shove one of your predictions back in your face. And that feels kind of good because Denis Shapovalov seated at this event takes out Jeremy Chardet, 6-3, 3-6, 7-5, 6-4 in the fourth. Uh, showed tremendous growth in this match because it was another really, really close affair despite it, you know, four tight sets. Uh, Matt, what did you see from Shapovalov that helped him get over this obstacle? Yeah, you, you, uh, I'll give you credit on this one, man. You got me. I, I definitely called upset on this one. Shardy had, had been playing really well in the grass, uh, so I thought that that was a prime upset uh, choice right there, but 
uh, not to be. I mean, Shapovalov served extremely well, 85%. You know, when he's throwing in that lefty corkscrew, 85% of his first serves in, I mean, that's going to that's gonna equal a good bit of winning for him. So um, I definitely look at that statistic as something that helped him out his serve. And he was just able to dictate play. I mean, I thought that Shardy, you know, with his forehand would kind of be a little bit more of the aggressor. But, you know, Shapovalov, man, I thought he's kind of similar to team, his long strokes. I thought that was going to hinder him a little bit, but he was still able to get the ball through the court. And, you know, when, when you're serving that well, uh, it's going to be tough to beat a guy like that. So, uh, yeah, big-time result for sure. I mean, against another guy – we keep harping on this fact, but, you know, a lot of these, these are like next-gen guys against older, you know, experienced, I hate to say it, but I'll say it, veteran-type players. <laughs> and, you know, when they, when they can, you know, take them out like that, I mean, it is impressive. So major credit to, uh, to Dennis, and we'll see what he can do uh, going forward. So two points off of that. The first thing I'll say you know, we have seen it a lot. We see these Tiafos, Shapovalovs, the Medvedevs, the Hechanovs taking out this older generation of guys who are ranked 20 to 50, you know, the middle class of the top 100, the guys who you will always see in the first and second rounds of these events. And seeing these young guys overcome that obstacle, being ready to work their way into the top 25, into the top 10, it reminds me of the way most recently for me, Murray and Djokovic and Chilich and Del Potro worked their way slowly. They were seated at the slams, first a little bit lower, and then, you know, all of a sudden they're a top 15 seed. And, you know, now they're overcoming people and they're constantly in the fourth round. And these are the type of steps of growth you want to see. And it's so exciting to see that from Shepovalov. But I actually have a tactical question for our Ivy League champion because why be here if we're not going to utilize your tennis expertise? Um, one thing I saw a lot of from Shepovalov, more than you know any other shot in his arsenal today, was really focusing on getting his return deep but more importantly, in the center of the court, trying to jamming Shardy in. You know, I know you haven't played on grass that often, but in terms of that tactic, what do you think about it that, you know, what about doing that on the return allows Shapovalov to have success? Well, firstly, I think uh, it helps with movement for Shapovalov because if you're returning deep in the middle of the court, you're really cutting off the angles available to your opponent, um, which, I mean, that's obviously going to help you on any surface but especially grass where it's when so you can't hard hit behind you yeah it's so hard to change directions yeah exactly going behind you is like not as much of an option going with a sharp angle is not as much of an option and especially if your guy's not served and volleying it's it's not only effective by cutting off angles but it's also just very safe and it's a high percentage shot well, I think both Tiafo and Shapovalov, if you're looking for a characteristic to link the two, on their returns really did a good job of getting the ball deep center for Shapovalov. That prevented Shardy from slapping the forehand you yeah. know, throughout the, the yeah. court. For Tiafo, it kept the ball away from the Verdasco forehand, kept him from doing the one-twos. And so that was a tactic I was really happy to see. And you look at some of the other stats, you know, as you mentioned, Shapovalov's success on the serve wins 57% of his second serve points as well, has more break points, ends up going 3 of 12 versus Shardy's one of eight. And then the other thing, I was surprised Shapovalov didn't come to the net more. And I thought there were a lot of quick points in this match. You know, a lot of one, two, okay, I'm going to go for my ball. And if I miss, whatever, but I need to open up the court. And, you know, neither of these guys came forward that often. Shapovalov, 11 of 22. Shardy, 11 of 23. So, you know, kind of a negligible difference there. Um, Still, Shapovalov's game translated a little bit better to the grass, right? Because he is still a good enough shot maker, Matt, to the point where 
it you know despite the big ground strokes with the angles with the aggression he has the game does translate well yeah it definitely does um you know maybe i would maybe i was knocking him a little bit too much um you know for his grass court prowess like that but i mean team you know team didn't come through and i thought this would be a similar situation but, interesting comparison um, i like that a lot yeah yeah you know they both have huge strokes and you know they need time to really, you know, whip that ball around the court. So that's just, that's why I thought, you know, uh, Shardy had a good chance in this one. But, I mean, Dennis, he, he really can play on all surfaces. I mean, the guy's just a good player. He's another guy on the rise. Um, so, you know, if, as long as he just keeps playing on the grass, you know, he'll build some confidence. And, and Dennis is one of the most, you know, when he gains confidence, I mean, he can start steamrolling. So that's a guy that if he gets a couple of wins under his belt, he could make a serious run. We've seen him do that before. I think last year or maybe two years ago at the U.S. Open, one of those years at the U.S. Open, he made a good run. So, um, you know, whoever he plays within the next couple of rounds is going to have to be on high alert for that because he can get rolling. So next round, Shapovalov's got Benoit Pair. That is going to be a fun match. going to be a lot of shot-making in that one. And if he wins that, he's got the winner of Delpo Lopez. So he's certainly going to be tested. Uh, one other last tactical thing I want to ask him, and then we can get our other resu- you know notable results uh, of the day's events. But to you, Max, you look at Denis Shapovalov and his aggression, his willingness to just snap the ball at any moment he's going to go after it. And we were watching the Sharapova match where obviously she had a similar mindset and it didn't work out. Yeah. You know, what is it, you know, it may seem kind of obvious of, you know, why don't you like these guys being so consistently aggressive, but I don't think that's your issue with it. You know, what makes you upset with Shapovalov's, we'll call it recklessness on the court? Yeah, I think it's not the aggression. I mean, you have to be aggressive, but it's controlled aggression. I think that's the biggest key, and especially on grass. It's such a nuanced sport, you know, it's, or, uh, you know, a nuanced uh, surface, sorry. And um, I think there there's a time to be reckless, and then there's a time not to. And I think for him to kind of level up, he's going to have to be a little more uh, picky, you know, sure. with when he goes Distinguish for, between yeah, the two moments. Right, right, yeah, exactly. Sure. Sometimes you just have to stay in points, you know. And uh, I, and, and I give think, the other guy a chance to miss. Don't I, be the first one to miss. I think that's what Hachanov did so well today, and that's you know you're looking at the difference, which is you know even more impressive against a guy like Ferrer. That's what I'm saying. I don't think Shapovalov yeah. gets away with his performance against a guy like Ferrer. No, I think I agree. he yeah. got away with it against Shardy because Shardy was also looking exactly. to be aggressive. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I completely Shardy's agree with a little you. reckless on the forehand too. Yeah, absolutely. But okay. That's enough with the breakdowns. Let's talk about some of the other notable results from today. Let's start with the seeds that went down because quite a few of them did. Obviously, we mentioned Team. We mentioned Sock. Another big one, David Goffin goes down in straight sets to Francis Tiafo, nemesis Matthew Ebden, 6'4", 6'3", 6'4". Goffin just did not really look good. And then you have Radu Elbat, a guy we heard from during the clay season, taking out Carreno Busta in five sets, 3'6", 6'0", 6'7", 6'2". Two six one. We had my guy, as I predicted, Alex Dimenauer, the young Australian, take out Marco Cecinato, the number twenty nine seed, the man who captivated everyone's hearts so well at the French Open, and a guy who actually has a history of uh, suspension from throwing matches. But we can talk about that another time. Uh, but he that's loses funny. six four. I'm sorry, six, that's seven. funny. Yeah, it's incredible. It just shows that maybe if he wasn't throwing matches, maybe if he was trying hard, he'd be ranked a little higher. But nevertheless, he loses to Dimenauer, a guy who's incredibly talented and will not be throwing matches anytime soon. 6'4", 6'7", 7'6", 6'4". 
I believe those are all of the seeds that went down, but the other notable upset, at least in my mind, was Pierre Uze-Herbert, the double specialist, taking out the, you know, he was playing really well, Misha Zvira, a guy who won his first ATP title just a week ago, in straight sets, 6-4, 6-3, uh, Fliegner, of those upsets, which one stuck out the most to you? Oh, you already know what I'm going to say. <laughs> the, I mean, it yeah. stuck out to me as well, but you can take the answer. Uh, I was just, I was upset that Misha Zverev lost. You know, like I said uh, in two pods ago, um, I'm, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a big Misha Zverev fan. I love the classic serve and volley, and um, I just think you know his hands are great. His strokes also look really great. He also uses the head speed pro, so naturally I'm a huge fan. But um, yeah, that one definitely stuck out to me, especially because if you look at those upsets, he's really the only one that's sort of expected to be, you know, going deep on grass. Like if you look at I believe Go you Fatten, had him, I kind of cajoled you into it, but I believe you said he was no, going to the semifinals. Yeah, I did. And you did cajole me into it, <laughs> yeah. but you you know, we we both we all made our fair share of bad predictions. Hey, great but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, look, Karenia Busta, GoFan, uh, who's the third one? Uh, uh, we had Karenia Busta, GoFan, Cecinato. Cecinato. Okay, you have to say it like that. <laughs> um, but Really, I thought Zverev was the only one that was like really expected to do well at this tournament. I mean, Gofan, Karina Busta, all you know, baseline grinders. Gofan's still scratching his eye from when Dimitrov <laughs> took him out. Uh, yeah, but those guys' games more geared towards slower surfaces. Zverev obviously geared towards a fast surface like grass. I mean, he's got to win that match. Yeah. What about you, Matt? Which of those upsets stuck out the most to you? Well, I, I guess I have to agree with Fleener on this, even though. It's not that much of a shock to me. I mean, Herbert, he plays similarly to Zverev. You know, that, that's like a, just, a similar matchup. I was going to say, he's just the, he's the righty version, right? Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, it's not a huge shock, and I think there was a little bit of a hangover effect there. You know, Zverev coming off that, that title win uh, just a week ago. So, you know, could there have been some fatigue there? Yes, I, I think probably so. Um, so that's not a huge shocker. I mean, I definitely expected Zverev to get through that. Um, but, you know, it's not that big of a shock. And then, you know, like Max said, I mean, Gofan, Corena Busta, these guys are, you know, they're more clay quarter kind of guys. They sit back there. They want to grind. Um, Ebden is a servant volleyer as well. He's also similar to Herbert and Zverev. So, you know, that matchup, that's just a brutal matchup for Gofan on grass, for sure. So not a shocker there. Um, Albot over Corena Busta, two grinders. I mean, that was a five-setter, so it is what it is. And Demonor, I mean, I like Demonor a lot, another young guy. So um, none of these really shocked me, to be completely honest. But if I had to pick one, I'm going to have to go with Herbert over Zverev, just because I thought Zverev was playing pretty good coming off that title. And I thought he could make a little bit of a run. So I was going to go with Dimonor for one of our matches to break down. And the reason I say that is because he now plays Herbert. And if he wins that, you know, the winner of that will play Nadal. And I still think that third round is when Roth is going to be vulnerable. I think all of those opponents do something to put a unique amount of pressure on Rafa and Bolt, or sorry, not Bolt, that's another Australian, but Dimonur is susceptible to get nervous, and of course that's something we have to think about, but have we seen a young Australian upset Nadal in Wimbledon before? Yeah, we have. It was a young Nick Kyrgios, and so would I love to see a scenario like that happen again? Yes, and I think the level he displayed to get it against Cicinato, if he can maintain that, he's certainly a threat against any player he plays, just so aggressive. Uh, I agree with you, Herbert just executed better than Zverev 
today. Zverev, I think, came to the net 71 times, and he won like 34 of them, which is crazy, and just you need to convert more than 50% of that. Um, obviously, the lefty strokes just weren't penetrating the court well today. Uh, some of the other notable results that we should talk about, Rafa, Zverev, Delpo, Djokovic, Schwartzman, all roll in straight sets. Kyrgios, a little testy against Istomin, but he ends up winning 7-6, 7-6, Kyle Edmund advances in straights. Nishikori wins in four sets against Christian Harrison in a match. I said would be closer than the experts predict, and four sets a little closer than the experts predicted, so we're glad to see it. But then some of the fun names who got wins today, guys I hope we see later on just because they play some eccentric tennis. The fear hand himself, Ernest Golbis, Prince of Latvia, Takes out young British Hope J. Clark, 4-6-6-3-7-6-3-6-6-4. You know, if Golbus can get going, that'll be, you never know what you're going to see with him, so it could be really fun. Another guy, exciting player, Bernard Tomic, very likely to throw a racket out of the stadium. He wins his match against a young Polish player, 6-4, 6-2, 7-6. And then let's talk about the Americans today, and that'll be our transition into the storylines. Americans go 3-3 three and three on the day. As we mentioned, Taylor Fritz, a winner in four sets. Francis Tiafo, he knocks out Verdasco. And then former NCAA champion and Stanford player Bradley Klon, a guy who had been in the top 100, had been injured, has had shoulder issues, all types of injuries. Great to see him get a first-round win, his first win ever at Wimbledon. Takes out Sagita, 2-6, 7-6, 6-2, 6-2. Obviously our three losers on the day, Christian Harrison to Nishikori, Sangren to Djokovic, which, you know, no, it's, what do you expect? That's what's going to happen when they match up with guys like that. And then Jack Sock, who we've talked about long enough. Um, in terms of the Americans, Matt, you know, three and three on the day, is that what you expected? Are you happy with those results? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's not bad at all. The only things that I probably would have thought, you know, might have happened a little bit differently, Stock, you know, possibly winning, um, and then Klon, you know, I, I probably figured that he wouldn't win. So for me, I mean, he's a big winner on the day, taking out a tough player in Sukita. I mean, that's a tough out. Um, so big result for him to get a, a win in a grand slam. And then, you know, for the losers, I mean, I've got to look right at Jack Sock. So, um, you know, he, he'd be my biggest loser on the day, unfortunately. Again, seems like that's every tournament, but uh, right. continuing on that path. Well, so. what, what about of those notable results I listed? Anything stick out to you? Any big wins or notable losses other than the ones we've mentioned? Um. Yeah, I mean, Tiafo obviously is a huge win, um, you know, over a seeded player in Verdasco. Klon against a tough uh, Sukita, that, that's a great win for him. Um, you know, for him, any win in a Grand Slam is going to be a step in the right direction. So, uh, very happy for Bradley Klon there. Fritz, I think Fritz got a pretty good draw, so I'm not going to go out and say that that was anything special. Um, I would expect Taylor Fritz to, to win a match like that. So, um, he took care of business. And then, you know, Christian Harrison and Tennis Sandgren, they're playing two, you know, two-seated players, well, obviously, Djokovic. I, I guess Corey, even so. beyond, but even beyond the Americans, you know, of those other matches, of the seeds, of, you know, anyone look good? Nadal, Zverev, anyone stick out to you? Oh, uh, besides the Americans? Yeah, besides the Americans. Sorry, my bad. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I think Nadal looked good. Obviously, I watched pretty much his entire match. I thought he looked good. He wasn't tested too much by Sela, but uh, we'll see how he progresses as the tournament goes on. Djokovic wasn't really tested. Uh, Sandgren didn't really have anything today, so I, I still don't know about Djokovic. I, I mean, he appears to be, you know, in pretty good form, 
Um, but I'd, I'd like to see him get tested just a little bit more so I really know. Um, other than that, that, that's pretty much about it. I mean, Kyrgios handled his business, played a bunch of tiebreakers, which he always seems to do. I'm sure he would have loved to have gotten off the court in straight sets, but um, he handled it in four. So, yeah, no, overall, I mean, just a good day. A good day. Yeah, I mean, I still have the Mackie McDonald, the Dimenauer. I have to watch Edmund. I have to watch Kyrgios. I have a lot of tennis still to catch up on, guys I haven't seen yet, so I'm very excited to do that. And, yeah, as you mentioned, top guys really cruise. Nothing too out of the ordinary that we haven't already mentioned. But there's one last thing I want to do before we go. That's list a couple fun stats from these first round for you fans. These stats come from Luca Brancher. Brancher, I'm not sure how to do it, but his Twitter name is at Luca Beck. Really has some great stats all the time. One of my favorite Twitter follows. He'll tell you how many wins players have, how long they've been in the top 100, the players they've beaten, who's made their first finals, who got their first win. Just a lot of fun facts. And so these stats from him, the one I want to start with, this year, 13 players won their first Wimbledon match. Some of the notable names, guys, I think we're going to be seeing a lot from moving forward. Dimenauer, Fritz, Nicholas Jerry, the young Chilean player, Mackie McDonald, Shapovalov, and Tsitsipas, all guys who would have gotten their first win at Wimbledon someday, but I'm glad they got it under their belts now. Uh, Other guys, Berrettini, Fabiano, Bradley Klon, Novak, Pea, Zabios, and then a really interesting one. Do you know this was Diego Schwartzman, not only his first win at Wimbledon, but his first win ever on grass? Oh, wow. (laughs) I mean, you you sound very interesting. I'm just saying a guy top 20, this is first win on grass. Yeah, that's definitely interesting. I didn't actually know that that was his first win ever on grass. I mean, he's clearly a clay quarter. Um, you know, we know that clay is, is his surface, but um, wow, wow, for his first win ever on grass, well, hey, good for him. That's what I'm saying. If he can do it, so can f***ing Dominic team. Like, come on, man. Dominic team. That's yeah. Right. yeah, and I just That's wanted right. to swear to make Flinger have to work a little bit harder. But okay, one last stat before we go. Here's another fascinating one. And somewhere, Flinger, my old coach, Ed Nagel, is screaming this at his television. For the first time in Wimbledon history, there are eight players over the age of 35 into the second round, at least in the gentleman's side. I'm not sure about the female side. But you have Federer, Lopez, Robert, Benito, Muller, Karlovich, Lorenzi, Garcia Lopez, all over 35, all into the Wimbledon second round. This is, again, a testament that middle generation of players suck. We're ready for these young guys to take over. I want to see a new class of tennis player get into those second weeks. Make it the Federers, the Djokovic's, the Burdich's who start going out in the second and third rounds. Let's see some of you young guys break through. And I, I'm really hoping this is the Wimbledon we begin to see that because a lot of these young guys are in a position to have success. And I think moving forward, that's the biggest thing I'm going to be looking forward to. Matt, we'll end with this and then Max will go to you. Going into the second round, what are the biggest you know things you are look, going to be looking for and looking at as we move forward through this Wimbledon? Well, obviously, I want to keep my eye on the top seeds. I mean, I want to see how Federer looks again. I want to see how Nadal looks again, just to keep you know keep pace with them and see how they progress through the rounds. They both look good in their opening matches, but you know, obviously, they had some favorable draws, so things are going to get tougher. I definitely want to watch them, and then some of the matches. Um, you know, that you mentioned before, some of the young guys, uh, Mackenzie McDonald and Tsitsipas, you know, I want to see how those guys do, how a Medvedev, Hatchinoff, how those guys can progress as well. So I'm going to be keeping my eye on, obviously, you know, the main guys and, uh, you know, some of those younger guys as well. 
What about you, Flickner? What are you seeing? Well, I mean, obviously I'm going to be looking for, like you said, those young guys to start breaking through. And that doesn't mean win one or two rounds. That means, like, break through the draw. You know, beat a top guy, beat a big-name player, and make it to, like, the you know, whatever quarters or semis. Sort of like we saw with Chung uh, at the Australian Open. That we need to see a breakthrough like that, hopefully from an American. Um, I mean, I'd love to put my faith in Francis Tiafo, especially because that would give me some nice indirect wins. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I think... Uh, I've said this before, but I think the uh, Dimitrov generation, like you were saying, I, that, this might be the first time we've seen uh, a generation actually be worse than the previous one. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think it, it's just kind of weird that we're seeing these older guys keep maintaining their status at the top of the game. And, and that's obviously, you know, credit to them for being like the you know the, the big four, whatever. The being, golden generation. Yeah, exactly. For being the greatest generation ever. But that just means that they're setting a higher standard for the younger guys. And, you know, I, I do like to think that we can see that from the Zverev, uh, you know, you know, sort the of next, Chums, yeah, the next the gen. Yeah, the next gen. I think we can see that from them. And like, yeah, like you said, I, I really want to see that from a young guy and, and not just break, not just, you know, win one or two rounds, but actually get to, you know, quarter semis finals. I I you make a lot of good points about the young guys, so I won't add and I will say I'll be watching the young Americans in particular. It would be nice to see one of them break through, make a third round, you know, maybe get into a second week. I'll also be watching in terms of the Americans, John Isner. Let's see if he can do something. He gets a good straight set win in his first match, takes on Bemelmans now, a lefty who, you know, won't really be able to touch the Isner serve, but We'll be able to, you know, slice out wide on the ad side, get Isner stretched, and we'll see how he responds to that. You know, other things I'm watching, again, which of these, it doesn't even have to be a young guy. It can be a Kyle Edmund. It can be a Nick Kyrgios. And, you know, Dominic team's obviously out, but maybe it's a, a Medvedev. One of, something like that. Who's going to break through? Who's going to be the guy who starts playing well now and we see that carry through throughout the week because it's got to be someone. There's just no way Nadal and Federer can keep this stranglehold on the top, you know, two. They're too they're too old. It yeah, I mean, we've been saying that for so long now and it and it's just and this is not a criticism or anything. It's just like when are we going to stop okay, saying so that? So you're right. So I guess you know? that's my question. Like, when are we going to see it? It gets to a point where like, you know, if Federer and Nadal Djokovic if they don't make the round of 16, it's a terrible tournament for them. And if you know, if if a younger guy does make it, it's a great tournament. And that's not acceptable. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we agree. And so that's really going to be the thing I'm going to be watching is who's going to be stepping up in this event and going to make a name for themselves because we've seen those openings. We've seen an Anderson make a final. Chilich's make the final. You know, all of these guys who before were maybe locked out. There will be some opportunities for them. So hopefully, one of them begins to show. You know, round into form and show they're going to be the guy to beat in this event. But all right, it has been you know a really fun you know first day and that's why we had to do give two recaps for you which were a ton of fun for us to record a quick programming note tomorrow is july 4th and though there will be a ton of great tennis being played we will not be recording an episode you know i I, let me actually i'd like to change that if roger federer loses tomorrow i will drag matt and fliegner sorry from whatever party or whatever they're doing, get the Budweiser's out of their hands, and we'll be in the studio recording a What Happened podcast. But short of that, we will be back with you guys after the second round. There will be a ton of great matches then to cover, and I'm sure there will be more storylines for us to talk about. 
But Matt, Max, I want to thank you both again for taking the time, following this first day so closely, sifting through all of these matches to come on this podcast and talk tennis with me. You know, as always, it was a ton of fun. So Matt, you know, thank you for coming on. Absolutely, man. It's a pleasure as always. And I don't think you're going to have to worry about Fed losing tomorrow. So <laughs> I don't think I don't think you'll have to worry about that. Yeah, I know. You're right. Yeah, I mean. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to talk about it. We'll see. Well, hopefully he wears Not a red, white, happen, red white, and happen. blue themed Uniqlo. That's what I want to see out of him tomorrow. As long as my boy Djokovic is still around, I'm happy yeah, to be in the studio. Not... <laughs> okay, I'm glad to hear it. Well then, one last time for our super producer, Max Fleetner, who has a f- of a job to do as always, for Cracked Rackets writer and... I want to say third co-host now of the Great Shot Podcast, Matt Stokowiak. I'm Alex Gruskin, and you guys know the exit by now, but to our fans, we say to you, Hey, great shot. And we will see you all next week. Thanks, guys.